A warm welcome, everyone, to this episode of Inspiring Brave Leaders podcast of Magnolia Tree. I'm very excited to be joined by our guest today, Indy Johar. Indy and I, we met a couple of months ago at a conference, will probably come up um, how we met, and I got uh, deeply inspired by the insights you shared, Indy, and so I'm really happy that uh, you join us for our podcast. I'm delighted to be here, and thank you so much for the invitation, and also the great work that you're doing as well. Thank you. As I was preparing for this podcast, I had a moment when I thought, wow, this is really a podcast about, I'm sorry for uh, using superlatives here, but it really feels that it is about make or break or life and death in many ways. And for sure, I think it is about brave leadership. And in my book, in my words, it's a lot about dignity as well. So Hopefully, this podcast is an opportunity for some of our listeners to learn about uh, the issues in a very frank and clear way, in the way that I've heard you express it. But also, of course, our aim is to inspire many of you out there um, to think about transformation and actually more than think to become active and to immerse yourself. Um, I'm very much in a learner mindset here as well, because I think I have just realized the magnitude and the scale very recently um, at a climate conference in July. So for me, indeed, this is, as you know, a very new journey as well. Um, and so together, I will probably ask a lot of basic questions that, you know, that that, that will help, help people like me really understand the scale. I would like to do an introduction. I normally ask, ask our guests to say something about themselves, and I will do the same here. I just find the initiatives that you've created very impressive. And so I just want to share some of that, if that's okay. So, <laughs> well, you're an architect, so this is part of your origin story, but also your co-founder, your co-founder of two organizations or initiatives, Dark Matter Labs, which we will talk about a lot in this conversation, I'm sure, and Architecture Zero Zero, is that right? That's right, yes. Yeah, a long time Fantastic. ago. Okay, so this is really back back to the origins. And Dark Matter Labs is an, an international research organization working with institutions around the world from UNDP, the European Commission on Net Zero Cities, the European Environmental Agency, Climate Kick, um, Scottish government, and various other national agencies and cities. And I'm quoting this, of course, because I thought it was very impressive. You're also an executive director of WikiHouse, uh, foundation and blogs hub and you lecture at a number of institutions worldwide such as the university of bath tu berlin uh the uh, princeton harvard mit so all the main ones and you were recently awarded the london design medal for innovation in 2022 you're mainly focused on the strategic design of new super scale civic uh, civic assets for transition but specifically um, the way that I've experienced you is that you really think about the inevitable change that will hit us on so many structural levels, such as finance, the law, the way we define ownership. Um, you speak a lot about noun-based noun language and how that has to change. Um, so you really are a deep thinker and trying to come up with toolkits that help us um, solve for some of these issues in the future probably did not do you justice. So feel free to fact check or correct anything that I just said. That's up. Fine. That's that. Anyway, let's, let's talk. Oh, I have the same. I have the same. In fact, I cannot, whenever I get holiday cards at year end, I typically cannot read them for a couple of months. Yeah, so exactly. I don't like it when people talk about me. So apologies exactly. for making you uncomfortable. It was Thank more you. for our audience than for you. So we're going to jump enough. right Fair into enough. it. So, all right. Uh, first time, of course, I heard about that Dark Matter Labs is, in fact, when you were introduced in a panel discussion about finance. Um, and I thought, huh, what a curious name. And then I did some research. <clears throat> and here is what I found. I quote NASA because it felt the most <laughs> official source for it. Um, where does the name Dark Matter come from? So NASA says Dark Matter makes up about 20% of the universe. 68% of the universe is probably dark energy. And only 5% is the rest, which NASA describes as everything we can observe and measure with our instruments, including of course, our planet Earth. 
is this where the name Dark Matters Lab comes from, or does it have a different origin? No, it does. Uh, it's rooted in that. Um, it's the kind of idea that the physical material world that we perceive is structured by rules, uh, our theories of organizations, our theories of objectification, our frames of language. They have, they have, they structure the world and in turn they make the world around us and we're in a loop. And often these things are largely ignored, like theories of property. Property is not a, a natural law. It's a construct that we've constructed to organize the world. Theories of labor are also a construct that we've built to structure and organize human contribution. And these are, these are seem to be natural law, but they're not. They're just mechanisms that we built at a particular moment in history to construct uh, to construct the world around us. And I think so. I wanted to give emphasis on these these ideas that are so deeply rooted that we we breathe them like water or air. Mm. We understand them as so deeply rooted that we we breathe them like water or air. Mm. We understand them as being just ideas that are constructed by humanity and then that they can be reconstructed by humanity in a new age. So that's really it, it it's a it's a metaphor that aligns to that same model. Yes. I yeah I I understand it's it's basically questioning what we think we know as facts or truth or the way we have to set up society at the end of the day in in some of our podcasts especially when I talk to leaders of organizations like um, IKEA or uh, just recently I talked to uh, Jenny Hoffman she was she's the CEO of WA Core the company that produces Gore-Tex I asked them about their favorite product uh, and why that is their favorite product I actually um reading on your website I saw some so many great projects so I'm going to do the same thing to you out of the many projects that you have facilitated hosted are working on at Dark Matter Labs which one would you say is your favorite project and why um one of my favorite projects I suppose is a self-owning surveillance camera Uh, a camera of surveillance which owns itself and thereby nobody else can perceive through it by right. So every camera is self-owning and thereby becomes a camera in relationship of care with its context. And so it doesn't become an eye, an all-seeing eye for an omnipotent being that can perceive the whole world around us, but every camera comes into relationship. And it using machine learning to be able to actually be in a relationship of care with context it can still it does record stuff you can still access that information but that accessing of information is restricted through digital warrants which means that actually these are mechanisms genuinely in relationships of care rather than surveillance markets or surveillance state systems what i like about that is that's technologically viable and we're in the middle of designing it and building it but it also how you change the theory of governance Fundamentally, fundamentally changes the nature of technology. So every camera is self-owning and thereby becomes a camera in relationship of care with its context. And so it doesn't become an all-seeing eye for an omnipotent being that can perceive the whole world around us, but every camera comes into relationship. And it's using machine learning to be able to actually be in a relationship of care with context It can still, it does record stuff. You can still access that information, but that accessing of information is restricted through digital warrants, which means that actually these are mechanisms genuinely in relationships of care rather than surveillance markets or surveillance state systems. What I like about that is that's technologically viable and we're in the middle of designing it and building it, but it also how you change the theory of governance fundamentally fundamentally changes the nature of technology from one of extraction and asymmetric power to one of being in a, te a technology which is life-affirming and is not a rent-seeking technology. So I like it because it's a small symbol of how theories of ownership and property and power can be recoded in the 21st century as we start to see, as we start to move things from the idea of being assets to being agents to being agents in care as opposed to agents of extraction and how we can construct this worldview around us. And so what is the purpose of these uh, of these self-recording cameras? Is it to watch out for accidents or for harm? Or, you yeah, know, absolutely. What is the so it's, so the, it's to be in a relationship of care. So if somebody is 
falls down, is unwell, or easy, even if they're attacked. So to actually be uh, uh, to be in a relationship of care, so they would they could call an ambulance, they could call care services, they could call out for help on behalf of somebody else, they could actually call the police. So they become active agents in relationship of care. And what I like about this, but without them becoming mechanisms of surveillance and asymmetric power. And so I use it as a symbol of actually our theory of moving from assets to agents, agents in relationship of care, agents, how we build a worldview which expands our theory of agency. So humans and non-humans as, as mechanisms of, uh, of agency rather than extrinsic control. So for me, it's a metaphoric project. And you know, obviously we're working on not just this, but actually a self-owning house to new theories of governance with rivers and how do rivers become self-owning, but also maybe through relational uh, governance mechanisms. So, I, And then how do you finance these rivers in new ways? So if a camera owns itself, how is it financed? Is it financed using uh, sort of smart petrol bonds? Is it paid through every time it does a relationship of care or triggers a call out from an ambulance? Is it got a transparent business model, which means that it doesn't become a rent-seeking system? Like all these things are coded in these small, small realities. And so anyway, that's why I quite enjoy it as a metaphor uh, for some of the work that we're doing. Absolutely. And it just just the way you explained it, it just blew my mind already. Just for me, um, just this example shows so many underlying assumptions that I have, especially around ownership, for example, right? Ownership, you call it extraction. So who owns the data? How how is it used? This is a nonprofit setup, right? So how does it finance itself? It's it's a beautiful example. Thank you so much for sharing. I hope we find the time to go deeper into some of the other projects that you're working on as well. Um, and I, uh, this has become a bit of a habit as well. This is not a particularly good poem, I have to say, but I asked GPT-4 to write a poem about Dark Matter Labs. Do you want to hear it? I'd love to hear it. <laughs> so this is GPT-4, okay? I take no artistic credit for it. Um, no. GPT-4 says, the mission of Dark Matter Labs is the poem. In a world of change, under the vast sky, stands dark matter labs with ambitions high, a beacon of hope in the complex night, shining a light on what's just and right. With a mission profound in cities they weave, dreams of a future they truly believe, equity, sustainability in every plan, crafting a world where every person can stand. In the lab where ideas take flight and soar, in every project they give a chance i've never been embarrassed by an ai before <laughs> <laughs> oh god no i hope it did not i thought it was really uh, on point yeah it's amazing uh but like as i was saying that's extraordinary anyway i'll chat <laughs> GTP. <laughs> i will send it to you i got rid of the typical tapestry word <laughs> the word that that helps you uncover every gpt4 written text tapestry Extraordinary. Um, but Extraordinary. Thank you. I, I really thought it was very fitting. Indy, before we dive deeper into yeah. in, in, into a lot of the context and the depressing statistics and so on, do you mind if we talk a bit about your origin story? So you write, of course, you trained as an architect. Did you do you feel that there was a pivotal point in your life when you felt that you want to become an instrument of change or you want to work on these complex, seemingly unsolvable issues? Uh, you know, was there like a, in the Bible, you have the sort of burning bush moment. Was there sort of an oracle specific moment, would you say? Yeah, I don't think there was ever a moment like that uh, for me. Um, yeah. For me, it was, there's probably a few things that I've done. I think I often work through adjacent possibles and a kind of deep mission. The deep mission is how do we radically democratize our capacity to make the planet and make civilization together? And that to me is just a based on a very root belief that every human is extraordinary, every life is extraordinary, and we have not unleashed the full capacity of every life, whether human or non-human, and actually, there's a moral and social duty to unlock the full capacity of every 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 human and every non-human system. So I think that that's rooted in there. But I think for me, my strategy has often been based on adjacent possibles. You know, the way 
we were part of building the impact hubs. Having built the impact hubs, we realized that we needed to, you know, how would we build furniture? And we built OpenDesk, open source furniture company. That meant you could 3D print furniture locally. We thought about that. And then we built the idea of WikiHouse, open source housing. How could you 3D print housing? And we looked at how do you build a next generation of impact hubs, which are focused on systems change and place-based transformation. And we built two forms of financing mechanisms as a result of working with those and started, started to reimagine how we would finance at the level of systems and um, invest at the level of systems and finance at the level of systems. What could that look like? And so for us, this has always been an act of unfurling. And I often believe that actually what you do is hold you you drive through adjacent possibles because you understand the adjacent possible and then you bring alternative perspective into that adjacent possible with a kind of deep underlying belief of what's possible. The final thing I'd say is that, and this is going back to something you said earlier when we, when we spoke, that I think one of the things I've avoided is becoming incumbent in the present system. And I think the attachment to the present system is I think a fragility that many leaders end up falling into. So, mm -hmm. and the attachment to the present system is attachment to the to the wealth that the present system provides, attachment mm -hmm. to the luxuries the present system provides, attachment to the recognition the present system provides. These are all attachment mechanisms. And unfortunately, you know, they the attachment then drives the corruptive behavior not to be able to challenge the system or even foresee past the system. And that's been probably one of the few things I have done is intentionally not become over attached to the benefits of the existing system, recognizing that in the attachment, I would lose my ability to discern as to the scale of change that's visible. And I think that level of discernment and non-attachment, I think is key for really radical leadership, I would argue. Can I ask you about the last point? But first yeah. of all, I notice as well that when you speak, even on, on personal questions, despite in a way, not, not in our very brief conversation right now, but in listening, listening to you in so many podcasts and other settings, you speak of we in general a lot. Um, so I, I'm, I'm assuming that this is also a way of, uh, you know, not, not becoming, not be, becoming sort of the identity or, or too much, too much attached. Um, but this is an assumption we're making no, right. <clears throat> on the, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I, I think there's too much possession of the brilliance of the individual, or the brilliance mm -hmm. of me that I think is way too problematic. The the reality mm -hmm. is, you know, we stand on each other's shoulders. My language is a function of thousands, millions, if not billions of people. Um, ideas are rooted on the shoulders of many, many people. And I think to hold that humility is really critical. And if the humility is not like, oh, I'm being nice to people, the humility gives us and maintains our capability to be relevant and smart. It's a self-interest yeah. principle. The problem is yeah. that as soon as you get captured by the thesis of your own brilliance, you also lose the capacity to learn and to actually be able to hear the world around you. And that's a self-limiting function. And I find too many leaders get caught into the incentive systems of the existing system or the kind of recognition of the individual. And at that moment in time, I think they undermine their capacity to be able to see the world that's emerging. I completely agree. In fact, I, I would self-diagnose um, in that myself. I, I, I don't think I ever deeply reflected it, but um, having worked in finance for two decades, for a number of years, I had... I had this stupid saying, I would tell my friends when I end, I work in Canary Wharf, when I enter our building, I leave my ethics at reception and then I work in the building. And then when I leave late at night, I pick my ethics back up at reception and I walk out. And this is a very simplified way of, I, I, I never reflected what that really meant and how much I went against my inner voice or an inner compass uh, in just saying that. But there was a conscious level of awareness. And I think what you just what you just sh shared, there's so many great quotes in, in just your last couple of sentences. I wished I myself and, and many leaders out there, and I know you posit that everyone is a leader in their own right, would would actually understand that more. So practically, yeah, yeah gonna, oh, sorry, please. No, I was just going to say, I don't think this is a moral question or like 
be a better leader. I think it's the only way to be a leader <laughs> is if you're encumbered and incentivized by the system around you, you are systemically corrupted. Mm-hmm. So you cannot discern, you cannot discern what's required. There are moments in civilization, I think, when this form of leadership is not necessary. But as we leave one system, as one system around us is self-terminating us, and we can go into that later as we get into this conversation, as one generation of a system which we know is self-terminating us, and we have to make a new system, I think that transitional leadership requires that detachment, because only then can those leaders actually see and make the moves and make the languages and make the scaffolds that are necessary for the next. I couldn't agree more. How do you yourself make sure that you stay detached? Like I say, it's in some ways simple. You have to blind yourself willfully to the incentives of the system. You have to blind yourself. You know, I've never, I, I think even when I was a young age, I, I sort of said I would never chase money. And if you chase money, firstly, you become incentivized and controlled by money. So you you have to organize not to be to be incentivized by those things. You have to not be incentivized by reputation. That if you become incentivized by reputation and self, you then become instrumentalized by those functions. So the kind of presence, and this is because we're transitioning from one system model to another. So the incumbency and the kind of lack levels of lock-in of the existing system to preserve the existing system are significant. So this does require a bit of discipline, but this discipline isn't some holier-than-thou discipline. It's it's a mechanism to be a leader. You have to actually be able to discern those things. That's the capability requirements and the capacity requirements of model leadership, in my view. And of course, if we, if we think it through, pretty much any system I can think of right now is built on the pillars of attachment around the reward systems, promotion ability of a person and so on absolutely because that's how the system maintains itself but i think that's now a self-terminating condition and i think the kind of and you know i would say the great value creators in a system the great value creators that create 10x and 100x of value are not instrumentalizable you can instrumentalize marginal shifts in value two percent five percent but you can't instrumentalize a 100x shift in value because actually that requires a completely different way. You're not encumbered by loss version. You are you are thinking in a different landscape. And I think we're facing a 100x transition. And that's why I think recruiters, CEOs, people that are boards that are recruiting a next generation of leaders need to be very careful and very structured about how they're recruiting and mentoring their next generation of leaders, because I think they're going to need a different class of leadership to be able to actively make that transition. I completely agree that they need that. I'm not sure we really have the awareness. You've been very kind when we talked about when we talked about some of the systems and some of the conferences. And, you know, I said, I, I see so much it, the opposite effect of what you say. There seems to be a cult around, around people and persons. There seems to be an, um, uh, almost a a sort of a homeostasis by you know great ideas it, it, pulling them into traditional ways of doing it traditional ways of capitalism or the way the way the world works um main stages um still play a key role and you said something to me in one of our conversations that actually touched me because he said listen sometimes even if the places are not perfect um you actually you sh- you should still be present in these spaces and you should still support them because they might just be the last beacons that we have. And in our conversation, of course, it was about Europe and, and conferences that support the Europe, uh, you know, the thought of Europe and so on. Um, how do you how do you navigate this world uh, personally, but also as an organization? I speak with a lot of climate act- activists lately, and there seems to be this real tension of <clears throat> we want to be we want to be um, challenging the system. And at the same time, we have to step into the system and then out again. So how do you specifically do it with the organizations you have created or in, in the spaces that you that well, you influence? You know, the, so firstly, the incentive system of the organization is 
not designed for those traditional incentive systems. We, you know, mm -hmm. our theory of pay has been fundamentally different. We don't see pay as a compensation for the work that you do. We see pay as a means to be able to do the work that needs to be done. So we've kind of recoded at the at the kind of specific level. But also I think what that means is and I, you know, every organization has a moment. And I would argue that, you know, one of the big things for me is that over the course of the last year, we've gone from being what I would call we were lunch, as in we were the entertainment in the system, as we were describing what was coming, and why it was coming to being actually, you know, CEOs are phoning us up saying, let's chat, because actually, it's increasingly, it's no longer mild entertainment, the volatility in the system, the uh, loss of predictability in the system, thereby the loss of kind of um, uh, insurability, the kind of destruction of, I would say, capital markets in some fashion are going to be visible and are increasingly visible to actors. So many of the things that we've been talking about are now becoming visible in the system or certainly, certainly viewable. And that's actually changing the nature of the conversation. I, th I think that's what's changed in the course of the last year. And I think that's all manifesting in lots of different formats and lots of different conversations. I think what is interesting is that it is now possible to talk about things that just a year ago, we would never been able to talk about. This morning, I was at a, at a conversation talking about, you know, property as a means of organizing the world, it was a means of stewardship of the world. And does property as a theory, work in an entangled small world scenario where where we talk about property rights but no property responsibilities where we talk about still having a theory of enslavement of the thing to the unit or even what does an economy look like which is beyond theories of labor labor is a theory of instrumentalization of human beings as units of function pre-coded by a third party what does it mean to have a human economy which is outside theories of labor and i think we're reaching the moment where a type of conversation is possible that was historically never possible even theories of value it's very i would argue that we've been operating in the in the second great enclosure where we have enclosed wealth and massively externalized costs in society and, and environment. And that ex those externalization of those costs, climate, you know, I've resulted in climate change, microtoxins in our bloodstreams, and, you know, my microplastics in our bloodstreams to other things. So we've been living through this privatization of wealth and the mass externalization of costs. And that is a second great enclosure. And that second great enclosure is now self-terminating us. So we're living at this moment, this paradigm shift moment, where actually we're starting to recognize that the source of wealth is not actually at the level of the individual unit, but in the level of entangled goods and entangled frameworks. And how do we shift our resourcing capacities to these entangled forms of value and uh, the generative forms of value in society? And that's going to be a paradigm leap moving from the ideas of private economies to civic and entangled economy economic generators and how do we allocate capital into them what's our theory of allocation of capital what's our means of allocation of capital in kind of high inflation rate environments in monetary policy which is going to i think become very challenging as interest rates persist at a high level which means that we will dampen our capacity to invest in the infrastructures of transition at the same time the volatility will demand those investments. So we're going to be moving into a very difficult, challenging period. But overarchingly, I think I would say, you know, we were lunch, and now we're not lunch, we're <laughs> part of the conversation. And that shift has happened in the course of a year. So I no longer feel like I no longer feel like we, we have to live in a bipolar world. I think we're just living by describing what's required and the scale of intervention. And I think if you look back in history, there have been incredible scales of of civilization scale interventions, whether it was Denmark in 1815, which two years after going bankrupt, invested in human education reforms in 1815, where 50, 10% of the population went on Volk schools, or even the UK when it spent uh, in 1833, 25% of GDP to abolish slavery, albeit didn't compensate the slaves, it did actually compensate the traders. Exactly, <laughs> the traders and recapitalized the banks that allowed the banks to yeah. invest in the second industrial revolution. However, it spent 25% of GDP to do that. That's an extraordinary statement. So I, I think we've forgotten there are these super macro tools. And I think there's super macro tools to restructure civilization that are going to be necessary. And I think these go all the way down, all the way across. And I think rebuilding our imagination, rebuilding our power and agency to imagine these sort of transformations is really key.
There is a very popular German podcast from uh, the Zeit newspaper. It's called something, I'm translating, but uh, Everything Said. And it's a podcast that runs for as long a time as the interviewee wants. And uh, there is a code word. And when the person says the code word, this is when the podcast ends. So they often record for four to six to seven, eight hours. And I just caught wow. myself thinking, darn, I would love to have you in that setting. And it's, it's just so much to talk about and so much to unpack. And I'm sorry for the audience because I'm not sure I'm going to do them justice, but I will try my best. What I'm picking up about what you've said is the speed and the scale is at a point in time where it's really harder and harder to be ignored. So CEOs are changing their accessibility and in a way uh, conversations can be had about non-negotiables, um, you know, before. Uh, and I hear in, a, in everything that you're saying, I hear hope, hope of, uh, you know, finding the, finding the solutions and already having some of the answers. Can we step into the self-terminating first, though? So how are the systems self-terminating us and, uh, you know, themselves? Uh, if you just paint that for us, uh, it's a big sure. picture, I know, but that would be, no, no, I, I, think I think that will be eye-opening. I think it's important for us to be relatively, as much as we can, honest with each other about the scale of the self-termination. Yeah. So, look. In current policy terms, we are heading towards between 2.7 to 3.1 degrees. Now, yeah. that is the conservative estimate of where we're headed. Um, if you speak to military people, their estimation is it's closest to six degrees based on the current trajectory, right? So that's 2.7 to 3.1 is conservative. Now, in that frame, which everyone kind of goes, okay, but three degrees temperature rise globally is... Five it's up degrees. and down, right? Yeah. yeah. Sorry, five, I'm jumping in. <laughs> no, no, no. Sorry. Five degrees on at land. And five degrees on land is closer to eight degrees in cities. So, and then temperature is only one aspect. Temperature is a is a proxy for energy in the system. So we've massively increased the energy in our weather systems, which means the likelihood of storms, likelihood of flooding, likelihood of high energy events in the system will massively increase as well. And this excludes any sort of sea level rise and other second order effects that are also predicted into those frameworks. Now, that's the kind of big picture. Eight degrees, okay, that's that's crazy, right? But let's now look back between 1.7 to 1.9 degrees temperature rise, which we're anticipating before 2050. Actually, what we end up with is we're losing one of our major food baskets. And the loss of one of the major food baskets means that actually we will be in a situation where we will be, we will see uh, the geopoliticization of food as a kind of, as no longer a global commodity, but as a geopolitical asset. So we, we saw India this year stop uh, rice exports, for example. We're going to, we're seeing the geopoliticization of critical minerals already and minerals. And so what we're seeing is the breakdown of abundant commodity systems into geopolitical markets. That's a factor of that transformation. At the same time, as temperature rise increases, we're going to see more pressures on our food systems. We're going to see um, more pressures on actually soil degradation, which means we'll have greater losses in our soil and unpredictability in the system will grow, which means we will lose as a result of unpredictability. Climate breakdown, not climate change, means that we lose predictable weather. Loss of predictable weather means we lose insurability. Insurability means we lose capital markets, which means that actually what we end up losing is the ability to actually resource and finance our our um, our food systems in the way that we've been used to. So this is a macro level shift in just the stability of the system as we embrace greater systemic volatility. And if you add in any of the geopolitical risks that we're seeing in terms of the geopoliticization of our economies as a result of those things, and we know that, for example, at a global energy level, everyone talks about every city we're involved in ends up saying, oh, we're going to electrify ourselves. And then that's great. However, if you look in the next, if you look at copper availability over the next ten years, there isn't 
quite a lot of, there's near infinite supplies of copper in the planet. But if you look at copper supply in the next 10 years, which is largely dictated by existing copper mines, you start to realize we've got a very, very, very narrow uh, threshold of what copper will be available because it takes 10 years to open up a mine. So, and we know every mine, so mining is responsible for 80% of our biodiversity losses. So not only do we need to expand, when we talk about hydrocarbon, moving from a hydrocarbon economy to a mineral economy, that means expanding our impact on biodiversity losses. So it's just worth recognizing how these moves are constrained. So we're likely to see major fluctuations in our capacity for energy, uh, sort of electrification. We're going to see massive inequality. Volatility will drive inequality in the system. It will drive uh, inequality of outcomes as well in the system. So we are about to go through a 10, 15 year period of pretty significant volatility. And that's what I mean. That Now that that is a kind of one aspect. That's just laying out the short-term picture. But what I mean by a self-terminating society is that our current capital allocation frameworks, just to say, so I think the, I think the report was that if you were to price in all social environmental costs, full costs into uh, S&P 100, I think it was like, uh, I think it was like 68% of the S&P 100 is not viable. Now, what that basically means, the majority of the product and ma manufactured economy around us is being a function of vast externalization and relatively free energy source and free, free resources from the planet. Those two functions have allowed us to create a, a synthetic abundance to which we've been living. Those abundances are being narrowed substantively and constrained. So what we're about to hit is a worldview where we are about to hit a systemic structural constraints and shifts of the energy supply. And we're about to hit climate models, which means that, you know, uh, at between 2.5 to, to, I think it's between 2.5 to, so 2 and 2.5 degrees, vast amounts of the planet in the global south become in, uninhabitable. To, uh, they, they move outside historic human niche zones. So when people talk about billions of people on the move, what they talk about is vast areas of human of current human habitation no longer being able to be habitable as historic human niche zones. So, you know, many of you will have seen uh, wet bulb temperature conversations that have been emerging around certain temperature points. I think it's even 36 degrees wet bulb uh, temperature, at, at which point human beings don't really make it beyond that. They, they can't survive for more than 30 to 40 minutes. So what you end up is a situation we are looking at structural risk. Now, my final point on this, why this, I think this is mutually, the final cascade of this scenario is that, is that when we put that level of trauma and disaster on the planet, when we put billions of people's of lives at the risk, I think we will unleash the type of systemic self-terminating environments remember the availability of unfortunately bioweapons information weapons all the way through to uh, all the way through to nuclear weapons we will once we put that level of trauma we will almost certainly unleash that level of terror in the system as well and once you unleash those i'm not sure there's a way back and if you, you know, some people have already said that we're already living in the third world war. This third world war is a system of proxy wars that are slowly escalating around the world as these geopolitical tensions start to rise. And we're going to see them rise as more and more critical common goods become scarce and become places of conflict. So I just want to lay that picture out as in kind of where we're headed at the scale of where we're headed. Now, my pivot to hope on this. And I think it's, you know, I'm sorry, this was a dark moment, and it was invited. My pivot to hope on this is this, that only by recognizing the scale of what we're facing, that itself is an invitation for our greatness, a greatness of a generation. Second, life wants to live. And what I mean by that is that once we all recognize we are in a mutually assured uh, destruction pathway, a mutually assured destruction pathway, the only option we have is mutually assured thriving. And in mutually assured thriving, that is about embracing a thesis of a life-affirming economy. And that is about actually a fundamental paradigm leap for planetary-scale civilization. And I think that's actually on the table. I think we are actually at the precipice of actually being able to actually pivot 
to a new thesis of uh, of energy systems, new thesis of nutrient systems, a new thesis of care systems, new material economies, new life-affirming economies at a broader level. We can move from command and control and punishment-orientated economies to life-affirming economies, which are focused on uh, unfurling the full capacity of life, whether machine or human systems. I think we can start to construct a radical new vision of this future. And that is, I think, the, the invitation on the table in the face of the darkness that we're talking about. And in the way that I think this frankness, this frankness of the dialogue is so important um, because um, I'm a huge fan of organizations like um, Global Optimism, for example. And, you know, I, I, I love the message uh, that gets out there. I just find that um, people who are not well-informed like me, we have a false sense of hope and optimism because we feel that government bodies, parties, whatever, right? Um, they they will change the rules. They will, you know, they, they're on top of this, which is interesting because it's almost, it's, 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 it feels a bit naive the way I was thinking, to be honest. But, you know, I had a sense of, oh, well, there's a sense of urgency, urgency and there's a sense of debate. And, uh, you know, when I first heard you lay these facts out, and these are conservative estimates, this is not our worst case scenario, um, it made me realize a number of things. So I think it's it's critically important, actually, to be frank about it. One of the things that I, I've heard you say as well that I, I find I find really important is it seems that we put uh, the climate crisis at the center of it all. Um, at the end of the day, though, the climate crisis is a consequence and it's a natural consequence of the way that we are setting up our human societies. Um, and and the rules by which we govern them, right? Absolutely. I mean, the climate crisis is a symptom of the problem, not the problem itself. Yeah, right? it's exactly. It's a symptom of, of a means of how we've organized society and organized and imagined ourselves. So I would argue and hypothesize that, you know, climate crisis is rooted in, in a misstructuring of our relationship with the world and ourselves. So if you imagine ourselves... We have constructed a thesis of uh, objectifying the world around us to make it separate. And in that divisibility, we've then created a thesis of perspective and distance. And in that thesis of divisibility and distance, we've created classification theory, which has allowed for permitted a thesis of violence. Mm -hmm. That that objectified worldview has allowed for asymmetric um, ownership, enslavement, all these things. That has allowed us to externalize vast amounts of costs without actually recognizing the entanglement of those things. And that's created the world that we see around us. And the problem that we face is that that view was just about um, plausible, not okay, but plausible when those externalities were non-visible. Those externalities weren't accumulatively mm -hmm. large enough, or we didn't have information systems that made those visible or we could largely rewrite history uh, as often as we wanted. Now, the problem is we're no longer living in that world. The entanglements are material, whether it's CO2 levels, or whether it's micro microplastics in our bloodstream, or information systems that no longer make the world ignorable, and feedback systems and planetary level feedback systems, which are now starting to have effect. So we've moved from this idea of an almost infinite planet where we could largely live in objectification and distance to an entangled small world planet. And those entanglements are forcing us to recognize that our interdependence. And that is a paradigm leap. And that is a function of computational capabilities, a function of uh, of the small world scenario and our entanglements becoming real. And it's a function of the volatility also that's being uh, engineered in the system. And at the end of the day, we have all these trigger effects. You know, you... Um... You laid them out for us. Um, and I think we can all see that just in the 2020s, just in the last three years, the amount of crises, the amount of, um, you know, um, wars popping up, the othering, the political extremism, the, of course, the the environmental um, catastrophes. Um, indeed, it's very hard to ignore this. At the same time, there is... A sentiment in the population, I find, that I, I don't understand, um, which is this criticism of especially climate activist groups, um, 
uh, I, I, you know, I, I don't know if you saw the news. I think uh, last week, um, a very well-educated man, apparently because the newspapers reported it as a professor, he shot two climate activists in the U.S. Um, uh, here, here in Germany, the tone is incredibly rough. Um, there seems to be a an age of ignorance still, and not really, not really. Uh, a movement forming at the scale that we probably need before it's too little too late. And we are forced by all these extreme, um, extreme terrors to change. Um, what, what is your view on this? Do you, do you see a shift there as well in the last couple of months? And what can we do to ignite more design thinking, more solutions thinking, more energy? Uh, in in our population to to help solve this problem um yeah i i think the two things i'd say i would increasingly differentiate between what i would call the social media derived opinion of a population mm -hmm. to the dialogic of opinion of a population in a fully embodied sense and the reason why i do that i, I recently was in plymouth uh, giving a talk, you know, in a Methodist hall, uh, citizens from Plymouth, it was amazing. Um, we had a pretty full on conversation, like pretty straight. And what I found fascinating was actually the level of just the willingness to engage with the scale of the problem, the willingness to be open that we are facing this level of transition. And in a way, I think all I was doing was putting words to what people were feeling already. And I think this is markedly different from the conversations I have at the kind of what I'd call the political and the boardroom level. And often at the political and the boardroom level, most people say, well, Hindi, you know, you can't have this conversation on the ground. <laughs> I'm like, no, the other way around. We have to, yeah. The conversation on the ground is more sophisticated than the conversation in the boardroom levels mm -hmm. because the conversation in the boardrooms and the political theatres are actually a function of derivative knowledge, not embodied conversations. And in a landscape of embodied conversations, it's a quite a different conversation. People can feel this violence in their world. They can feel the 40% increase in food, food prices. They can feel the energy prices. They can feel the fact that actually material costs have gone up. They can feel all these things on their ground. It's, it's not a different world. They can feel it. And they can feel that there is a different world coming. Uh, they can feel the threat to their world. So I, I don't know. I'm, I'm more and more of the belief that actually there is a different conversation possible on the ground right now. And I think our politicians and our leaders need to start to have not communication, but to be in conversation. And there's a difference. I think we often talk about communication design and communicating well but actually the art is to be in deep conversation and deep conversation, which allows people to actually explore their fears and vulnerabilities. People recognize, I think the only reason, the reason why climate change is, has been weaponized as a discourse, and I think it's been weaponized by the incumbents, by the way, is that it's a means to actually maintain incumbency wealth for as long as possible and to accentuate that wealth. Um, and I think we have to recognize that we have to be cool about that. That's why, you know, I would say people have talked about climate change as opposed to climate breakdown. Climate breakdown is the loss of predictable weather. Climate change as well, you know, we, you know, climate is always yeah. changed, right? Yeah. It's the, the loss of predictability. Now that, if you code that well, climate breakdown, loss of predictability, as I've said before in this conversation, that's a loss of predictability. Loss of predictability is loss of insurability. Loss of insurability is loss of capital markets. It's a civilization level functional loss of capability. So I think we have to be very careful about language. We have to be very measured about those language. We have to talk about this. And this is no longer a kind of, um, and we have to talk about how we all make it through. The reality also is, that I think what COVID showed us is that the rich don't make this out, right? There is no viable New Zealand strategy for the rich. Because yes, you could you could escape to New Zealand without penicillin, without paracetamol, without microchips, and without uh, and without sort of uh, PPPs, right? So yes, you can mm -hmm. escape to New Zealand, but without those civilization forming functions, microchips to penicillin, actually, it's like living in the Middle Ages. 
So I don't think people have quite understood, right, that we are so entangled that there is no pathway for divisional viability. And I think that's where I think we have to talk about this as a mutually assured thriving capacity. And I think increasingly, leaders of all different backgrounds, leaders of all different wealth have to recognize this is going to require actually that sort of mutually assured thriving capacity. And that's going to require humility from all of us. And I think this is exactly where the divide, in my sense, where the divide still is strongest. It's in this divide around wealth. It feels to me like dancing on a hot volcano. While Greece was burning, we were on holiday in Greece. There's such a disjointment or a disconnect here. And I believe that you're right, um, that people of immense privilege and power at least in my experience, even when they're aware at the end of the day, right now, they're trying to maintain that and prolong that. And might even have the belief, as you know, I, I coach a number of influential people and sort of CEOs or board level of large organizations with, of course, uh, big paychecks and so on. And I sort of my sense is that they feel that, you know, the, the climate breakdown is not really going to impact them as much or no maybe not at all because they can build the infrastructure the houses you know they can be grid free whatever panic room whatever um and i just don't think that this i don't know futuristic view is really true there are a lot of uh, hollywood movies <laughs> that suggest that right that this is possible and, and we create this two-tier society i'm much closer to what you've shared which is it will hit all of us and we will not have the infrastructure uh, to maintain to maintain things as they were, um, for sure. But this disconnect, I think, is an issue because of the lobbying power and the influencing power um, that is held in proportion to so many other communities who don't Absolutely. have that. Absolutely. And I think, you know, a microchip is a function of 70 billion people's worth of knowledge over over years, right? It's not a function yeah. of just sort of a few people. It's a function of a planetary game. It's a, a microchip is a function of a planetary capability. And I think people have, have created the illusions of divisibility in this. I totally agree with you. I think we're massively, and I think COVID was a very powerful wake-up call when people started to realize the level of entanglements. And even now, you know, when you look at, planetary level supply chain entanglements, you start to realize how deeply entangled we are as a global planetary civilization. And um, and I think those are real. So I agree with you. I think this is this requires a different theory of politics. I think it requires, I think it requires the calling of a great peace, um, recognizing we are currently at war. Um, we are currently at war with future generations with our ecological systems, and we're currently at war with each other, um, materially or through economic means. And I think I think we are talking about a paradigm shift, and I think that is going to that is going to be required if we're going to make the scale of transition. So, I, I'm I'm totally in agreement with you. And I'm in agreement with something I've heard you say before, which is we can't wait. We just, I mean, actually, I, I was in that camp too. I'm really outing myself in this conversation, but I, in hindsight, I'm thinking, oh God, I was so naive. But, you know, I used to say, I'm 43. This is my generation. But I was, I was saying, oh, I'm so hopeful about the next generation. You know, the new generations, they, they're going to figure this out. No, what a load no, of BS, yeah, right? I mean, no, there's there's no next the generation. time. There it's is no next generation. It's me and my generation, right? Absolutely. It's our generation. Absolutely. Um, there's no next generation. There is, if if we are thinking that in 25 years, somebody's going to solve this problem, we're all dead. We basically, yeah. it is in the next 10 years, everyone that's a viable leader right now will almost certainly be in some form of leadership position. It is us. That's it. You know, it is our generation that either makes it through or doesn't. And if it doesn't, then let that be on our heads. And it should be. It should be Absolutely. on our heads. You said I, I, I just want to explain this because because the numbers you use they're they're based on real cost, right? And you just used the example of the chip. The reason why the chip is so costly is because we source material that had to be built over millions of years, right? Um, and 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 so and so when you use numbers like that, it's really the true the true cost, and it also shows how irreplaceable some of those raw materials are. If you use them up. It would take a long time to grow them again. Is that fair? Absolutely. And I think this is where 
I think we are going to, we are in the midst of a foundational transformation of our economy. The energy source moving from hydrocarbons to mineral energy sources, renewable systems, moving our theories of our nutrition of our economy, our bio, our material economies, you know, our economy moving from materials to intangibles, uh, to biomaterials and durability, uh, all the way through to even human development. I think us moving from theories of labor and instrumentalization, human economies to actually new forms of economies of uh, capacity, creating economies of intrinsic capacities of human care and new symbiotics with technology. That's a foundational transformation from energy to food nutrition, to nutrition, to materials, to automation, to human development. That is the scale of a civilization shift we're in the middle of. And I, I think we, we're not yet grasping the, the extraordinariness of the moment in its full scale. My eye-opening moment was a conversation with Mary Robinson, the former Prime Minister of Ireland. It just happened, it was by chance, I sat, sat at a table with her and I, I was talking about some of the things we do. And she looked at me and she said, listen, Sabina, what you do is really important, the ethical leadership piece and the dignity piece. But at the same time, I realized a while ago, she said, what we really need to work on in the next couple of years is the climate breakdown and the climate crisis and changing the systems. If we don't fix that, pretty much everything else becomes obsolete. And I, she, she didn't say it quite so stark, so please don't quote her yeah. directly on that, but this is how it landed. And I thought, um, <clears throat> crap, <laughs> you know, yeah. I was like, I was, I was, I was, I was struck by that. And I, I thought, no, okay. All right. I've got to, I've got to shift. I've got to do a but, but shift. Just to be, but just to be clear though, climate breakdown is a symptom of a structural shift. In 100%. Right? It's our theory yeah. of how we organize the world, theories of labor, theories of property, all the way through to theories of how we, you know, create money in terms of claims on future energy. It's structural. And it's also about how we imagine the world around us. If you imagine the world through a theory of dominion, the theory of objectification, the theory of control, the theory of enslavement, that creates the permission for vast forms of externalization and misoptimizations. So we've engineered uh, market mechanisms and the capital mechanisms that are creating those vast externalities and climate is just one of them. And in the process, we've also objectified ourselves and dehumanized ourselves into units of labor and functionality, either directly or indirectly. So this is a just so that your leadership piece, I think, is not just the thesis of leadership. It goes back to the beginning of our conversation. It's actually a mm -hmm. functional human development transition, which is going to be key yeah. for transitional leaders. Leaders that will transition us from this world to the next are going to have to make themselves different to be able to actually not encumbered incentivized for the old system. Otherwise, they will merely be traps for the and maintenance people for the old system. We need these transitional leaders that are operating in a different invest incentive thesis that can see this 100x transition of value that can operationalize themselves in different ways. So your leadership piece is not is I would say is, is absolutely critical, but in this full dimensional transformational way. 100% in the radical changing, changing the system way. Absolutely. Right. One one quality or one item that I'm thinking a lot about um, when it comes to leadership is not just leadership, actually. Our society is a word that we use often, but I found we don't have a good definition for it. I was very surprised about it. It's dignity. Because we use dignity in various contexts. So, um, you know, dignity is actually a fairly new word. Apparently, it came up in the first time in the 1700s. Um, and it was it used to be linked to uh, roles of honor or the church, you know, any anything like uh, any any function rather than the person. Then it became dignity for mankind, and then it became dignity for humankind. But it's not it's not even real defined. Like how do you injure someone's dignity, and what does that mean, even if it's written in legal text, like in Germany? For me, though. It holds a key, and I would just love, love, love to hear whether you, you've ever thought about it or whether you've come across it. Because I'm a scholar in this, for me, it, it kind of holds the key in, in as as a core question to ask ourselves on every element of society. So, in the way that we raise children or educate ourselves, in the way that we live in in love relationships, in the way that we live with one another in the way that we treat people in systems and companies and such. And then of course, in a pan-national way um, and 
uh, in a planetary way, in the way that we deal with the resources and, of course, the life on Earth. Because I always felt that if we just ask the question before we make a decision on is this guided by dignity or what could be the most dignified way um, of forming a decision that we would have far better outcomes. And this is a very simple, simple way of, um, of tackling some of these questions. And the more I research about it in, in other holy texts and the more I try to find out about it, the less I, I know about it. So I just wanted to take the opportunity to just see if you've ever come across um, a dignity, a definition of dignity, or uh, you know, any quality that you see is the real key to bring about this change. And I tend to ask seven questions in one, so apologies for that. No, no, not at all. <laughs> the word I tend to use is care, actually. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And care is in in a complex emergent system, we cannot be conscious and aware as to our effects. So we have to be full of care, careful, mm -hmm. to be full of care. Mm -hmm. And that's because of the unintended consequences that we unleash in the system, in especially in complex entangled systems. So the act of creating the conditions to be of care, to create the conditions to be of care, is I think the thesis is, I think, the role that we often have to create. How do we create the conditions to be of care and to, to create the conditions to people not be units of labor, but to be careful, full of care in the context and the activity they're doing, to be embodied intelligences of all their intelligences to be embodied in that framework. So the question I think we have to operationalize is to be in a relationship of care. And I think this is going to be one of the key things that I think machine self-optimization systems or kind of seeing humans as bad robots and looking at relationship as transactional systems, not necessarily systems of care, I think has been one of the kind of major uh, instrumentalizations and sort of bad codings of the world around us. And so for the language I sort of often think about is how do we create the conditions to unleash the full capacity to care? How do we create relationships to be in care of each other and, and the mission, not just each other, but ourselves, our mission, our work, as well as each other. So there's a kind of multidimensionality of care. And that requires a new thesis of adulting, I would argue, for us to yeah. be adults and and thereby be fully embodied actors of agency in clear consciousnessness. And that that's a sort of form of, I mean, I would say that that creates a landscape for systematic dignity. And the dignity is not just between humans and humans and no. non-human systems, but also our machine systems. How do we build relationships of care in our machine systems? And I think those things are going to be really, really important in those ways of seeing. I will invite our listeners to please look up um, what you say about enslavement, object, objectification. Um, it's very eye-opening, and we won't have time for that um, as we as we near the end of our time. So I would like to start closing out our conversation by talking about the so what or what's next or what can we do. And you've you've offered a number of of elements around this. The care aspect, I think, is a beautiful one. So, you know, care at the core and what does that mean? And being very careful because we do not know the unintentional effects that we have. You talked about embodied conversations as well, which is true conversations from human to human. Uh, and then, of course, at Dark Matter Labs and at many other organizations that you're affiliated with, you work on designing the future and you work on designing some of these changes. Do you have any thoughts, any tips for someone to want to get in, immersed into this, for someone to, to want to think about changing key elements in their system and their organization, where should they start? What could they do? I think the thing that's come across in this conversation, I never really thought about till this conversation properly, was this idea, create the conditions for your leadership. Yeah. And I think you have to actively and with consciousness, create the conditions for your leadership. Those conditions are not being instrumentalized by the system that you're in, but actually being incentivized by the system that you want to be in. And you have to be able to be very consciously create those conditions. So if all your incentives 
are rooted in the preservation of the existing system, then whatever you do in your language and your words, you will be persistently locked back in the preservation of the existing system. And the ability to speak truth to power is not some ability of courage. It's the ability of the incentives you set yourself. Uh, and if you create the incentives around you, then you will operate in different paradigms. So for me, one of the big takeaways of this conversation is in order to create the next generation of leaders, we're going to have to recruit leaders that are free from the lock-ins and the incentives of the existing system. And they intentionally create the conditions for that reality to be able to perceive the next world and thereby organize for that next world and be able to drive that change to be able to have those honest conversations uh, in a way that's necessary, but also to be able to actually lead and to be able to transform the world around us. This is exactly what we try to do with our dignified leadership concept and model. And at the same time, what is tough is that most of us don't have a reference of what can it feel like, what can it be like. Most of us think that they have to sacrifice something or give something up when really it's liberating. It's liberating to think in the incentives of the system you want to be in. It's in incredibly freeing. Absolutely. And it also constructs genuine power. I mean, if you're instrumentalized, and I think most most leaders are actually instrumentalized by the existing system, actually, you 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 are in power, but not necessarily have power. Um, and I, I think, you know, I think having power is not a problem as long as you act with power with responsibility. In fact, the challenge is not power. The challenge is actually the irresponsible use of power, or the fact that you are just merely a an agent in in the seat of power, but with no actual capabilities to use the levers of power that are available to you. I think those two things are really problematic. So yeah, I, I really appreciate this conversation. I really appreciated that the those particular insights about what does leadership require for this this transitioning period between this world and the next. Indeed, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for the time, the depth of our conversation, the many sparks of thoughts that you initiated in me the last hour and a bit um, and for being so generous uh, to coming on our podcast and I'm, I'm looking forward to our continued dialogue and I really hope that we reach a number of leaders and help them think about their borrowed power versus their um, innate power in bringing about change. Thank you for Thank you so much. No, thank you for everything you're doing and all power to you and be able to make this these sort of transformations. Thank you. Thank you.